Welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous uh, 100 Pounders Special Focus Meeting on Wednesday, the 13th of January. And our speaker today is Gary from Miami. And um, Gary, I just am reconfirming with you that you're okay to be recorded. Absolutely. Take it away, Gary. It's over to you. Thank you. Good morning. I'm just saying my timer here. So. Good morning, boys and girls. Or good afternoon. I know we're in different time zones. Hello, uh, hello boys and girls. And, uh, I'm a recovered compulsive eater. My name is Gary. And uh, let's hope I have something to say today. Um, you know, this 100 pounder meeting, so you know, it's, it's so rare that I talk about weight anymore. Or even like, really think, I didn't really even think about it much until I started preparing for this meeting. But um, I, I've been in OA for a little bit over 32 years. I've been an active member of OA for, 30, for over 32 years as I've never left. I've never, you know. Um, I wish I could tell you that I'd been absent for 32 years, but I haven't. I haven't knowingly eaten sugar in 32 years. So for a lot of people with sugars, they're absent. Like if this was Sugars Anonymous, I'd be like a superstar. It's like, like uh, <laughs> I haven't eaten sugar. I haven't knowingly eaten sugar in 32 years. I imagine at some point I ordered a Diet Coke and somebody bought me a Coke or something like that happened. But I haven't knowingly eaten sugar in 32 years. Unfortunately, I'm an Overeaters Anonymous and I have overeaten during the last 32 years. And, uh, it's a weird thing. I, you know, it, it, every time I've lost pants, it's like three or four times. And it's, it's always started the same way with an extra slice here, an extra piece there. They're just not paying attention. Just not, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the ways the big book describes the um, mental obsession is not just like, constantly thinking about food, but not thinking about our recovery, just forgetting about it. Like the guy with the milk, I just suddenly I had a thought. Milk would be good. But, you know, like it's just uh not thinking about that and every time i've lost my absence that's what's happened and um uh i remember one year i was positive i was absent because i wasn't eating any sugar or flour <laughs> i was positive i was absent but i was gaining weight and um one of my good friends teresita said to me well if you're gaining weight what are you abstaining from clearly it's not overeating because if you're like it, like it's just physically that's the way it works if you're gaining weight you're overeating so um i take that that part of uh like for me in addition like people talk now there's a very popular thing about talking about our alcoholic foods and certainly i have some foods that i never ever eat and that kind of stuff but i'm an overeater and volume is a thing for me too and for me broccoli is a gateway drug uh I never want to, to binge on broccoli, but if I overeat on broccoli today and I eat a little bit more tomorrow and I eat a little bit more the next day, sooner or later it will lead me to carbs. You know, sooner or later, over, overeating triggers my allergy the same way um, certain substances do. So I just, that's what's true for me. And my belief is it's true for a lot of people. And, and that seems to have gotten lost. Uh, in, there's a current movement in, in a way that I love, it's a big movement, but, um, uh, Sometimes this idea that this is overeaters anonymous uh, gets lost. Also about the weight thing, I just want to say something about the like I, I've been thinking about what the difference is, what God has done for me. I, I'm about 130 pounds lighter than I was when I got here, um, and it's remarkable what God has done for me, and it's really made a huge difference. Um, but I also want to say like there are differences. There's a big difference between coming in and having to lose 130 pounds and and having to lose 20. There is a difference. There's a difference in what we do. The, the, uh, the OA 12 and 12 talks about how we have, we have eaten ourselves and, and made ourselves object, objects of derision. We have you know, made ourselves, people like stare at us, it's different. 
Um, so there are differences. But at the same time, I want to make it really clear that if I've ever said or done anything to make you feel like you were not a compulsive eater enough to be an OA, I'm sorry. Um, generally speaking, if your ass has found this seat, the ass is smarter than the rest of you and you belong here. Uh, last week, somebody shared that they felt like a fraud because they didn't have that much weight to lose. Um, here's the thing. Healthy people seek help sooner. That's all. You know, it's a sign of mental health that you only got here when you only had 20 pounds loose. And it doesn't mean you aren't being tortured. Your torture might be a little bit different from mine. You've never had to ask for an extendo belt on an airplane or anything like that. But um, it doesn't mean you're not tortured, but the same way we are. Bill refers to it as tyranny, the tyranny of our, uh, of our disease. And, um, so I just want to you know, make that clear that compulsive eaters is a compulsive eater, whether they're top shelf or bottom shelf. Um, so, uh, it is so weird. Uh, addicts are the only people, our egos are so inflated, it's so like that we literally try to outsick each other. Like we take pride, like I had to lose 700 pounds, I had to lose a thousand, like, like, like we take pride in that. Like I was so much sicker than you. Uh, and you still see, like if you go out to, to, you know, if you hang out for coffee after the meetings with some of your friends and you hear the number of people say, well, I ate a dozen of those. Why well, ate two dozen, I ate nine dozen. I ate 16 dozen while hanging upside down. Uh, just how much we do to outsick each other uh, and take pride in that. Like, look what I've accomplished. I, I, I was 700 pounds. And uh, here's the thing: I used to sponsor a guy who was 700 pounds, and I was and I, and I was uh, like I said, uh, about 340. And nobody gets that size by choice. Nobody like I choose to be 700 pounds. If, if, if he had any, he had a car. He had to have a special car seat built in his car to hold him up so he could sit in his car. Here in Miami, there's very little public transportation and you have to have a car. Um, but it was just like, like nobody chooses that. That's not a, a matter of choice. Um, so anyhow, yeah, I'm, I'm rambling on about weight. Uh, I do know, I came in when I was 34 years old. I just remembered this the other day, preparing to talk about this weight stuff. Um, I came into a treatment center and they had a, um, an exercise day. and. It was one of the first days. I came in August 1st, 1988, and uh, they took us to the Hollywood Beach down here in Florida, the boardwalk, and they bought, rented bicycles, and we went bike riding. And I was like, first of all, it's August in Miami, was, you know, so it's a bit of a challenge, but I was like, oh, and I couldn't make it back and forth across this boardwalk. And the worst part was the bulimorexics, the bulimics and the anorexics were like, bah, 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 bah. they were like, oh, we get to exercise, and they were boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, ah. And you had to go with a buddy, you couldn't go alone. Somebody had to go with you. So there was this poor anorexic girl going with me and she was hating me, <laughs> just hating me. Cause you, you can see, cause she really wanted to take off and say, oh, I get to exercise now. Anyhow, um, but last week I went for a, a bike ride. I rode 20 miles. I'm 66 years old now. I couldn't do that. Like, when I was 33, that wasn't even a thought, wasn't even a possibility. I have height. I've been hiking all over the United States and Canada. I have seen some of the beautiful sites uh, in the country or in North, in North America. Um, hiking, uh, I hiked the, 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 the trail of six glaciers in, in Lake Louise, Canada. Uh, just beautiful all over Utah. And the things that my body would never have let me do uh, in my 30s. You know, like I'll be able to do things now that weren't uh, a thought. So having rambled on about weight, uh, no, but for, and for those of you needing to lose five pounds or just, 
just have the obsession. Uh, the biggest deal is the freedom from, from, from compulsive eating and the obsession to eat compulsively. You know, the, 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 the big difference is being able to go to sleep at night or wake up in the morning without self-hatred, without being suicidal, um, and uh, without loathing myself for another failed day. You know, um, I came in, the gifts of the program, it, yeah, that's about all about the disease I want to talk about. Um, you know, just the first step alone, just the, the, the information that I am powerless over food. I've always known that. I've, I've known that since I've been a compulsive eater all my life. I've always known that, but until it was articulated, until it became clear to me, until, as, as our 12 and 12 says, until it moved from my head to my heart, uh, I, I really didn't know who I was. That information is so valuable. Like once you've eaten against your will, once you've done stuff, you know, I've held things in my hand, eating them, crying, saying, please, God, don't let me eat this and eating them. You know, once you've eaten against your will, um, all thoughts of I would never do this, I would never do that, go out the window. Because I know, I know who I am now. And I know that driven by compulsion, I will do anything. There's nothing. Like, <laughs> my dad was a compulsive eater. And at one point we were living in the Caribbean because we were, we were both hiding from the police, as it turns out. Um, but he, we, were, we were both avoiding going to jail. And uh, my dad was a compulsive eater and he was going through this point where his way of dealing with it is he got rid of all the food in the house. So there was no food in the house. And I was having a carb, um, uh, a carb craving. I was having a craving for carbs and really going nuts. And um, I had this thought, there was no food in the house, but we had a German shepherd. And the German shepherd had these milk bones, these are dog biscuits, but they're, uh, they're carbs, you know? And I had the thought, and once the thought's kind of like, that's how the obsession, once that's in my head, once I let it dwell there, like, you know, if it passes through and I get rid of it immediately, that's good. But if it, if it sits in there too long, uh, it does, even me, look at me, I'm bald, but if I sit in a barbershop long enough, I'm going to get a haircut, you know, like, I do, you know, anyhow, so I had this thought about the dog biscuit and I went, okay. And I, I went and ate a dog biscuit and it was disgusting. It was absolutely horrible. Uh, it nauseated me. And the second one wasn't any better, nor the third, nor the fourth, nor the rest of the box. I just ate the dog biscuits. Um, that's what it means to be powerless over food. In fact, the first time I told that story was at a beginner's meeting and there were a bunch of what I then thought of as elderly ladies, women my age now. When I told that story about the dog biscuits, and they went like this, they went <gasps> like that. And I was like, oh man, like if you can make people in a way go, that's pretty bad. Because you know, you guys have all eaten out of garbage cans and crap. So like, who are you? <laughs> so, so I didn't know. So on my way out of the meeting, I was talking with my friend Maxine and I said, so was that really disgusting? Because that really doesn't break the top 10. I mean, I've done much more disgusting things than that. And she said, oh, it's only really disgusting if you had to wrestle them away from the dog. You know, uh, very clear that this isn't a matter of choice. I am powerless. I, there was nothing I could do to stop this thing. And I can't manage my life because of that. You know, so uh, here's what I was told, that either there's a higher power that can help me or I am totally screwed. If God can't help me, if there isn't a God who's on my side, can't help me with this thing, uh, then you might as well just pass the razor blades because it's over. There's nothing I can do. So uh, I didn't believe in God. I, I wasn't really an atheist or an agnostic or anything. I was just obnoxious. I was just uh, like, whatever side you were on, I was going to argue with you. Like, like, if you believed in God, I was going to tell you why there wasn't. If you didn't believe, yeah. And in a way, everybody seemed to believe in God. Um, 
So my sponsor, I was trying to argue with my sponsor about why there's no God. And he said the most brilliant thing, and those of you who sponsor uh, obnoxious people might want to remember this. He said, I don't give a hoot what you believe. He used the word hoot, but you get the idea. Um, so I don't give a hoot what you believe. You can't manage your relationship with a fork. So God hasn't chosen to reveal the nature of the cosmos to you, Moses. He said, just like that. Like, who do you think you are? Um, and then he said the important part. He said, listen, if you want to get well, it is your job to come to believe this. You know, people who get well believe in a higher power that can restore them to sanity. And most of those people believe in God. And, and all the people who had what I wanted did believe in God. So um, it seemed ridiculous, but I got on my knees and I said to God, I, I get choked up whenever I think about this. It's my first real prayer. I got on my knees and I don't even know where the words came from. But I was looking up at the sky in front of my window. I still pray in front of my window on my balcony. Um, and I said, God, please redeem me. Please make me new. And redemption are, or, or, like, uh, it just isn't the concept even that would have naturally come to me. Uh, uh, but I said to him, God, please redeem me and make me new. And, and, it, and he did. Uh, I, I don't know any of the words for it, but, but it, right, like, um, that's really, I guess, a third step thing. But um, the grass was greener, the skies were bluer. But more than that, it was just... The, I guess the third step decision to, to live my life by spiritual principles, that decision alone changed me so much from seeing somebody who could just see what I can get away with. Like if I can get away with it, it was legal. You know, like uh, if I wasn't caught uh, and changed me so much to try to live uh, by spiritual principles, man, everything was different. And I have to say, for those of you who are new, one of the most important reasons to do a third step is so that you can take a third step with others. Um, all of us who have sponsored here can tell you about the first time they got in their hands and the knees of a sponsee and they saw God for the first time and they started crying and holding their hands and just that depth of surrender. There's nothing like that with being with someone. There's an intimacy in that that's unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I have to say, as part of the gifts of this program, um, I come from a really abusive family, sexually abusive, physically abusive. Uh, I could have died at the hands of either of my parents. But my mother and I, particularly on my father and I, healed quite a bit, mostly through the eighth step. Um, but my mother, when she was dying, she was in the hospital and um, she was always kind of jealous of the spiritual stuff I'd been doing. I guess I had about 15 years when she died. And um, she said to me, I want to do what you do, but she goes like this, but it has to be Jewish. Because she knows I do all kinds of Christian and weird stuff. She goes, but it has to be Jewish like that. Um, and she was in her wheelchair and I got on my knees and I held her hand. She couldn't get on her knees because she was in a wheelchair. Um, but we did the third step together and she cried and saw God for the first time in a long time and had a spiritual experience. And, uh, I can't tell you, I know there are very few men in, in this meeting. There are very few men in NLA, but for a man, at least to have that kind of experience with his mother is such a rare, rare opportunity. It happens to so few of us and, uh, would only happen in the, because I'm forced to it by, by OA, by, by trying to live these principles, you know, like. These steps, people talk about working the steps like it's a drudgery, but there's such freedom, there's such, they're, they're great, like, uh, for, uh, you know, the vast majority of people come to the end of their lives without ever knowing who they are. The vast majority of people come to the end of those last 30 seconds, like, wait, wait, I never got to, I never, you know, and four and five, like, forces us, and I've done several of them, fourth and fifth, uh, forces us to come to know who we are, you know, um,
at the end of Death of a Salesman at the funeral, I, I hope that's not a spoiler alert, uh, at the end of Death of a Salesman, the, the salesman dies, hence the title. Um, they're at the funeral and his son Biff is looking down at the grave and says, here's the real tragedy. He never got to know himself. He never got to know who he was. And four and five, like what a blessing it is to know who I am. Six and seven, to build character for the sake of building character. Eight and nine, you know, like I said, I come from this really abusive family and I was doing the eighth step and preparing to make amends to my father. And I had this list, I had stolen some money from him. I had done this and that. But I had this list of what he had done to me that was like, look at this. And I was saying to my sponsor, it was so unfair. Look at what he did and look what I did. So, you know, so out of balance. He said something to me that changed my whole life, uh, but really freaked me out. He said, uh, why don't you just forgive him? <laughs> I said, why don't you just forgive him? And I heard that as if he said, why don't you just levitate? You know, like, why don't you just, like, it just seems so ridiculous. And then he, uh, I, was, I was taught that forgiveness is simply surrendering my right to revenge. That's it. It doesn't mean like if you're a thief and you've stolen from me, I might forgive you, but I'm not inviting you back into my house. It just means it's surrendering my right to vengeance. And um, I forgave my parents and that changed, changed my life. It, it changed not just my present, it changed my past. You know, so much of that stuff dissipated in light of that. Um, I'm running out of time, so I don't think I'm gonna run through the rest of the stuff so much other than to say 10, 11, and 12, what a great way of life. I, the, the preface to the uh, AA 12 and 12 says that the 12 steps are a group of, spirit, group of principles, spiritual in nature, which if practiced as a way of life, now I've done once and then bragged about for 30 years, but if practiced as a way of life, where we move the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to live a happily, usefully whole life. Um, I practice the 12 steps as a way of life. I live in 10, 11, and 12, but we just did this great public, uh, public information event trying to carry the message. And, uh, I guess I'll close with some of that with the remaining two minutes. This gets a little bit preachy, but bear with me. This is a time of year that is so important for compulsive eaters. If you know people where you can reach out to people, if you can find a way of carrying the message, you know, a lot of people are hesitant to approach others. Remember that I've known 14 people who have died of this disease since I've been in program, of this addiction, not other addiction, 14 have died of this addiction. Remember that's life and death. And, uh, you know, we're 12 days, 13 days into the new year, which means, you know, New Year's Day, compulsive eaters all over the promise took a solemn vow to stop eating. And the next day they were still eating and they were discouraged. And the next day they were still eating and they were discouraged. And now it's 13 days into it. And every day they sworn to themselves, I'm done, please help me, I'm done. And every day they lied to themselves. Many of them today are feeling completely hopeless and lost and, and many of them are contemplating suicide. Many of them will commit suicide. This is what's happening to compulsive eaters all over the planet this week. I'm so grateful that OA is saving a seat for these people. I'm so grateful that OA was here for me. Um, but to do whatever we can to reach these folks now is just, you know, if you belong to an intergroup that has a PIPO committee to reach out and to, write letters to the editors about OA, just leave little flyers in your gym, whatever you can do, because this is a horrible time of year for, for those of us still in this disease. And um, if you're a newcomer, I, I, I echo what it says in the big book. I beg of you from the very start to be fearless and thorough. I don't know anybody who has thrown themselves into this way of life who has asked for their money back. 
everybody I know who's, who's made this the center of their lives is a happy camper. And um, God and this program and you people have saved my life and given me a life worth living. If there's ever anything I can do to return the favor, please let me know. And thank you for letting me share this morning. Gary D, thank you so much. Can everybody give Gary D a clap? We have to give him the jazz hands, obviously, because we're on Zoom. Thank you so much.